Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, another fight over the Supreme Court looms, but will this battle be as bloody as previous ones? The face-off between Russia and Ukraine seems headed down a road that will inevitably involve the U.S. military. A labor shortage is affecting law enforcement and a result public safety. And an interview with State Senator Reuven Carlisle, who is hanging it up after more than a decade in politics. But first, welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, and this week, Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement from the United States Supreme Court. He is the oldest living justice of the Supreme Court and one of just three liberals on the bench. He had been under enormous pressure to step down while President Biden held the White House and the Democrats controlled, although by a very slim margin, the United States Senate. Joining me now is Eugene Scott. He's a reporter for The Washington Post. And, well, first off, let's talk about Breyer's legacy. What has he been known for? Well, he has been known more recently for, quite frankly, not always being a consistently liberal voice. Uh, He obviously uh, joined the bench uh, to give uh, Democrats a bit of an advantage in so many of the rulings that uh, have been uh, known and, and, and influential throughout his time on the bench. But more recently, he's been a bit of a, a swing vote. And I think what the Democrats may be looking for moving forward is hopefully someone who can be more reliably left. He will be known uh, for actually like this moment, quite quite frankly, this moment that will be so very decisive uh, in terms of whether or not uh, Democrats will be able to change the uh, future of the United States, given the more recent uh, number of conservative judges that have been appointed during the Trump presidency, which was record-breaking. But Breyer was chosen in 1994 uh, by President Bill Clinton, um, and he was known as being very pragmatic. And so, you know, more moderate than many on the left uh, would have liked, but very much aware of the political diversity of this country and and really wanted to often find ways to compromise uh, and bring both sides uh, together on the bench in a way that benefits as many Americans as possible. Was he successful at that? How much was he able to build consensus on the bench between the two blocks of justices? Well, I mean, one of the ways he uh, had a lot of success in getting people on the same page very recently is um, related to Obamacare. He wrote the majority opinion um, when the court rejected the third challenge at the Supreme Court uh, to the Affordable Care Act. Um, he, he also, you know, did some authoring of the court's decision regarding Google not violating copyright law and, and this, like, multi-billion dollar argument or battle with Oracle. And so he's going to be known for uh, much of his writing and being very decisive on issues that were not always easy to decide. He wasn't known for, you know, being divisive or for taking extreme positions uh, that often put him on extremely opposite sides. He was very much a team player and really tried to get fellow justices all on board to try to make decisions um, that that they hoped uh, would be in the best interest of uh, the American public. So what about replacing him? I know there's been a lot of talk about a, a particular judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Yeah, you know, uh, Biden, while campaigning, promised to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, uh, hoping very much to win favor with uh, women voters, black voters, and and those who just have a high view of diversity. And uh, Katandi Brown-Jackson is perhaps the name that is surfacing uh, most regularly, although Biden has not announced anyone, uh, he has a short list. Uh, it is very uh, 
common for people to get these things wrong. But Jackson, uh, who is on the the D.C. Court of Appeals uh, right now for the D.C. Circuit, clerked for uh, Breyer and is very well known in so many of these legal circles as having been on track to get to this point at some uh, period in her career. What else do we know about her? Uh, well, we know she is a Harvard Law grad. We know that uh, issues related to race and diversity have been of great concern to her throughout her uh, career. Uh, and we know that the Senate confirmed her uh, to the appeals court. And so there's the belief that uh, she could have uh, uh, enjoyed the same privilege or success, should I say, uh, when trying to advance to the Supreme Court. Speaking of the Senate, the confirmation is always a, a, a tough needle to thread. Uh, we saw all the fighting uh, with Mr. Trump's nominees, particularly with the last one, Amy Coney Barrett. Are we expecting to see a big fight from Republicans, whomever Mr. Biden picks? That's likely. I think Republicans understand what could happen if uh, this justice pick is someone that is more liberal than they would like. We know that the Republican Party right now is deeply focused on cultural issues. And, and this is something that we often look to uh, the Supreme Court to decide. And the thought that uh, someone uh, could make it much more difficult for them uh, to advance the conservative ideology that they've had such success moving forward uh, in the past four years uh, would, would motivate them to be perhaps more contentious than normal. Have we seen anything from the Democrats? Chuck Schumer, the leader's there. Is he promising a speedy confirmation? Certainly a hope for that, because uh, we know that Biden has had success getting uh, liberal judges confirmed at a rate uh, that, you know, is superior to at least the last four presidents. And Schumer's been very involved in that. And I, I would imagine that he would want to keep that going, especially with a situation as uh, consequential as this. All right, Eugene Scott with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So what about the fight in the Senate? Is Biden's nominee likely to get an up or down vote? Joining me now is The Washington Post's Amber Phillips, who's been covering this part of the story. And what have we heard from the senators so far? Yeah, that they're open to looking into who Biden will nominate. Um, well, I should say that's on the Democratic side. <laughs> on the Republican side, we don't have someone for people to rally for or against yet, although there's a very short list. But you do hear Republicans try to talk about how they feel like President Biden has moved to the left on so many issues and the Democratic Party is too progressive. So therefore, of course, their Supreme Court pick will be too radical is the word that's echoing around on the right. And so they're really gearing up to oppose this, which isn't any surprise. Supreme Court battles these days that we've had a couple of them over the past couple of years have become partisan battles, almost, almost like elections. But would the Republicans really expect anything less because no one could say Amy Coney Barrett was a moderate? Right, exactly. Uh, you know, same with, I think, the other two picks that President Trump picked and under, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, especially under really controversial circumstances and nomination and that the Senate Republicans put on, on the court despite almost all Democrats' objections. So you're absolutely right. This is a case where when you're the minority party in the Senate, you're locked out of power to filibuster these Supreme Court nominees. They, the Senate took its own powers away to do that a couple of years ago. You cry about how unfair the process is, how radical the nominee is. 
And then when you're the party in power, you can do what you want. Nothing quite like hypocrisy when it comes to a Supreme Court confirmation vote. There have been some names talked about, and and, and we've we've, uh, mentioned those before, but have senators floated their own ideas that that they want to see confirmed to the high court? No, they're really leaving this open to President Biden, in part because, you know, their job under the Constitution is to essentially confirm who the president picks and senators take that job really seriously. Um, but what they are saying is that there's some criteria they might want to see. Senator Kirsten Sinema is a senator from Arizona, and she's had no problem bucking Democrats, of course, on some really big votes. Last, just last week, she quashed their hopes for getting voting rights legislation through. So it's not a given that all 50 Senate Democrats will support this pick. Um, And so she's someone you want to watch for. And what she said recently was, you know, I want to provide advice and consent, which is what the Constitution asks senators to do. And I want to look at whether they're professionally qualified. They believe in the role of the independent judiciary and they can be trusted to faithfully interpret and uphold the rule of law. So it's really not specific (laughs) what I hear cinema and, and other senators say. Um, but they're also not out there, at least publicly floating names. Privately, they might be, but not publicly. What about the other thorn in the White House's side, and that being Joe Manchin? Right. Joe Manchin, he's been kind of open to this. You're right. He's a thorn in the White House's side. He sunk the president's build it back better spending bill right before Christmas. Um, and he actually has been the lone Democrat to support a number of President Trump's Supreme Court nominees. He told West Virginia's Metro News it wouldn't bother him if Biden's Supreme Court pick is more liberal than he is. He he made a joke. He goes, it's not too hard to get more liberal than me. So, okay, um, I'm summarizing here, but he said like that, that's the president's prerogative. And then, of course, we've seen some comments from the Republican side, most notably Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, saying, quote, elections have consequences, and that is no more apparent than it is with the Supreme Court. Yeah, I think he's referencing what you and I just talked about, which is Supreme Court battles increasingly are partisan battles. That's because the senators themselves have set this up, so it just takes a majority of the Senate to pass the Supreme Court nominee. Um, there have been a ton of openings lately as an aging court retires, although Breyer might be one of the last <laughs> in a while. And so I think Lindsey Graham is just referencing the fact that Supreme Court battles are increasingly seen through the prisms of, of elections and, and of partisan politics. They're, it really blurs the line, I think, between the judiciary, Congress, the White House, which exactly is what the court and retiring Justice Breyer said they don't want to happen. But it, I think if you ask many Americans, they would feel like Supreme Court justices are either on their side politically or aren't. And, of course, it's up to the Senate and the White House to decide that. And, you know, one party always has a majority in the Senate. And so, therefore, one party can decide who to put on the Supreme Court. How does this being a midterm election year change the calculus? They're still trying to figure that out. I think that's an interesting question to watch. Conservatives have traditionally been much more in tune and focused on Supreme Court battles. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has said it was a major unifying factor in 2012 and then in 2016 for conservatives. Liberals have not been as focused on this, but after losing out pretty badly in three Supreme Court battles in a row, two of them right around elections, they polls show that they're starting to um, say this is more of a top priority for them and for their base. And so it, one big question is whether Senate Democrats 
who are trying to keep their seats in Congress in November can talk about how they supported a Supreme Court justice who will try to uphold Roe v. Wade with abortion. And of course, that's a really popular talking point uh, among the left and liberal base who see that essentially uh, eroding or maybe even being knocked down entirely. And so it has the potential to get the liberal base excited, get them focused on abortion, which, which is becoming more of a big issue on the left. But at the same time, I think what might be left unsaid from these senators is that this pick won't change the, the political tenor of the court. It still leans very conservative. And in addition to that, Justice Breyer, not this new justice, is going to be the one deciding this really big case in Mississippi on abortion that could potentially roll back abortion rights in America. So if, if you're a political strategist, you're always looking ahead to the next election, the next cycle, the next Supreme Court pick. You mentioned this might be the last one in a while. Is President Biden, granted he may only serve one term, is this expected to be his only pick? I don't know, but I, th- I think possibly. Um, and that's because Breyer at 83 is the oldest justice on the court. We saw a couple other justices either retire and or unfortunately die while they were in office um, who are aging. And so unless something unexpected happens, the next justices are in their 60s and even their 50s. And, um, you know, I think who Biden appoints could sit on the court for a long time, just like who Trump appoints. And it might be a while before we have another opening. And what about President Biden's commission that he appointed to look at court reform, whether that's packing the court with additional justices, changing the terms of the justices? Is there any movement on that? None, which I think is telling. Um, I don't even hear a ton of voices on the left right now clamoring for Biden to, to try to reconsider that. It felt like during the campaign when he appointed that commission, or he said he would appoint it, and then he did when he became president, it felt like a way for him to push these issues to the side. He is not really a big champion of reforming of how governing happens in America. Um, it was a big deal for him to say, let's make an exception for the filibuster just for one issue on voting rights. And so I think liberals who want that kind of change on the Supreme Court have accepted that it's not going to happen. But who knows? Maybe that conversation could get wrapped up again. But it's certainly not something I'm hearing about here in Washington. So finally, before we let you go, we don't know who the nominee is yet, but how partisan of a fight, how bitter of a battle can we expect when we get to those nomination hearings? Well, it could be less bitter and partisan than in the past because Republicans know that there's not a lot they can do to stop this nomination. It's up to all 50 Senate Democrats to stay unified and and vote this person in. That's all it takes. That and Vice President Kamala Harris casting a tie-breaking vote. And so I think both sides are going to try to score points, as you mentioned. This is happening right as an election year gears up. Uh, But there's a potential. I I hope I'm right and not wrong, but there's a potential for this to be less is bitter and rancid than previous Supreme Court battles. All right, Amber Phillips with The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. When we come back, how law enforcement is dealing with a severe labor shortage when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Law enforcement struggling in the Northwest. So many officers have been leaving the city of Seattle and King County due to the lack of support for police, whether that is real or perceived. But now some agencies are trying to fill that gap. Joining me now is Fox 13's Matt Markovich, and it looks like some departments are so desperate, they're not only offering signing bonuses, which is something of an industry practice, but retention bonuses as well? What's going on? Actually, the first that I could find was actually the city of Everett 
having some form of retention bonus to hold on to their officers. But like you just said, the Seattle is the one city where retention bonuses are not there and they have the biggest bleed of officers of any big major department almost on the West Coast because of a lack of support. So now you have a discussion that's going on that we found out about between uh, newly elected Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell and the interim police chief, Adrian Diaz, and they're discussing a $5,000 per officer retention bonus, $5,000 cash to have a promise that the, the, the officer will stay with the department at least till the end of the year. Now, this falls on the heels of the King County Sheriff's Department already handing out bonuses. Um, King County deputies will get a $4,000 retention bonus in their paychecks on February 17th. Uh, we found that out this week, although through basically agreements that are being sent out by the King County Sheriff's Officers Guild and the rank and file was forwarded that information and the interim sheriff, uh, Patty Cole Tyndall has confirmed that for us. So you basically now have one King County agency doing that, the King County Deputy Sheriff's. And there's pressure now for the Seattle Police Department to do that. And now we're hearing word that there's discussions, although it's not a formal proposal just yet. So this is just for staying on to the end of 2022. Is that correct? Well, it's it's in the it's in the works, and that's what I'm being told. That's what the possible retention bonus is happening, and that's the same with the city of Everett that initiated that with King County, and we're assuming it's going to be the same uh, if it does become a proposal with the city of Seattle. But again, this is five thousand dollars. There's roughly, uh, and this is a debatable figure, how many officers can be deployed. This city, the um, police department, saying they have over a thousand deployable officers. The union is saying there's only 860 some odd officers that are really deployable um, that are actually active and working right now. And if you use this, basically the city, the SPD's number, it's you know, five and a half million dollars in retention bonuses that we're talking about here. That's a big chunk of money um, in a department that's been cut by the city council in the previous administration. And so we don't even know where that money would come from if they decide to do those retention bonuses. Now, Seattle is already, like you talked about, having hiring bonuses. They have a $25,000 hiring bonus right now for experienced officers who want to do a lateral move to the city of Seattle and $10,000 if you're a new recruit and want to join the force, you get a $10,000 uh, hiring bonus. Um, so there's money for the new recruits uh, we did the we did the math using SPD's own numbers, and basically there's been a net loss of 225 officers uh, over the last two years. That's, this includes officers who are leaving and new hires. So there's been a drop of 225 officers uh, at the department over the last two years. Now the union disputes that, saying it's actually more, but we don't have those numbers from the union. All right, we'll have to see how this plays out, and because that's going to be a good chunk of change for a thousand officers, give or take a few hundred, and giving them five thousand dollars a piece just to stay for the end of the year. Matt Markovich from Fox Thirteen, thank you so much. You're welcome, Jeff. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, State Senator Reuven Carlisle is hanging it up. He'll join us to explain why he's leaving the legislature when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. State Senator Reuven Carlisle. 
Carlisle announced this week he will not seek re-election this fall. The Seattle Democrat says it is time to consider other opportunities. He has served in the state legislature for more than a decade, first in the House and then in the Senate. Senator Reuven Carlisle joins us now, and I guess my first question to you is, you're only 56 years old. Why step away at this point? Well, thanks so much, Jeff. Look, we have a part-time citizen legislature, and there's something romantic and wonderful about real people living real lives, serving in a citizen legislature and bringing your expertise to the table. I've been an entrepreneur in the in the mobile and software and the clean energy uh, industries, and I feel super strongly that it's important uh, to be a regular person. And, uh, you know, my civic life of serving in the legislature is a great honor, but it's not a lifetime career, and I don't think it should be. So what opportunities are you seeking? Well, I, look, like everybody, I've uh, been excited about new chapters and new opportunities. In 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 13 years, I feel like I have passed some of the most consequential legislation there is uh, in climate and in tax policy and a whole bunch of other areas. So for me, I'm going to uh, step back a little bit and look at my professional consulting and sustainability and my work as an entrepreneur and look at private sector opportunities, public sector opportunities, and my civic life. My my community work is so important to me at the local the city uh, as well as the, the national and international level. So I'm super excited about uh, new chapters. Looking back on your time in state politics, is there a piece of legislation or something that you've done you're, that you're most proud of? Yeah, absolutely. Well, in the last few years, Washington State has passed the most sweeping package of climate legislation in the nation. I had the great honor of going to Glasgow to the UN Climate Summit, and Washington State is seen as a light among the nations, if you would, in terms of that spark of innovation. We're the only state in the nation with binding and forcible level commitments to Paris Agreement uh, emission reductions. And I'm proud of that. And we have the policy framework under my bills uh, to reach those levels. And so we have an economy-wide cap and invest carbon pricing bill. We have the strongest 100% clean energy bill in the nation to decarbonize our electricity sector uh, and many other policies. But I'm also proud of uh, the legislation I've done to make uh, the value of a tax break public information that used to be hidden from public view. And and then finally, I'm very proud of all of my work to help youth in foster care. When I entered the legislature, the high school graduation rate for youth in foster care was in the 20s. It's now in the mid-50s because of the investments that we've been able to make through Treehouse and Mockingbird Society and some of the main foster youth education organizations in the state. So very proud of that work as well. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that maybe opposed to the U.S. Congress, the Washington state legislature seems to have much more of a camaraderie, for want of a better word. There seems to be a bit more bipartisanship, and I think uh, no more was that on display than in the speech you gave this week about the late Senator Doug Erickson. You guys couldn't be more opposite when it came to policy, but you were good friends. Yeah, I I appreciate you raising that. Uh, You know, Doug Erickson was very, uh, very tough politically for me, very uh, far, far right. But he he and I uh, tried very much to to let grace and personal friendship be the driver of our of our engagement and our communications and our, uh, our our discussions about our families. We both went to the same high school, Seaham High School in Bellingham. Uh, we grew up in Bellingham, uh, 
And, you know, ultimately, you're exactly right. It is so important. Uh, a part-time citizen legislature is is real people living real lives. I've been out to visit the chicken farm of uh, Representative J.T. Wilcox, the Republican leader. They've got hundreds of thousands of chickens. It's fascinating. I brought my four kids out years ago to see that. And uh, Senator John Braun, the Republican leader, is a gentleman who I've just done a ton of a tough high-level bills with and legislation. So I just feel that bipartisanship is really critical. I reject old-style uh, negativity, and uh, I reject today's uh, ideological rigidity and extremes. I just don't connect with that. I believe in negotiations. I believe in compromise. I believe in getting to yes and finding a win-win. So by that argument, why don't you stay in the legislature? There's few of you left. <laughs> well, fair enough. Again, 14 years it'll be. Uh, I've done my civic duty for a while, and I'm going to uh, let someone else uh, take a time there. But, you know, ultimately, the beauty of a citizen legislature is that you get uh, doctors and lawyers and nurses, and you get uh, entrepreneurs and farmers, and we need people to step up to civic life. There's nothing like serving in the state legislature. We're the you know, we're the warriors of, of representative democracy. The folks in Washington, D.C. and Congress, you know, they can't pass a bill declaring Apple Pie Month. Uh, they make speeches and they raise money and all of that's fine. But if you really want to see meaningful action, state level is where it's at. I mean, look, we as a state are about the size of, you know, Norway and Sweden and Israel and Denmark. And so we're we're major players on the world stage and we can be a thought leader on environment, health care and so many other areas. And that's why we have the quality of life that we do. Finally, what's the one thing that you want your constituents to remember about your time in office? Well, thanks so much. You know, I, I want uh, I want them to remember that I brought uh, a level of intellectual rigor, of objectivity, of study of the issues and data and and deep personal passion uh, and a fierce commitment to my constituents. I really believe in the romantic ideal of uh, representative democracy in this beautiful constitutional republic. And I love quoting the Federalist Papers on the floor of the Senate. And I just want them to know uh, how honored uh, I've been to be their servant leader uh, in the area of, uh, of civic life and how uh, seriously I take it and how much I've given it all to leave it all on the field for them. And I hope to serve our community uh, for many, many years to come. Reuben Carlisle, the Senate stands adjourned. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Still to come, Russia, Ukraine, and the United States. We'll get the latest on this Eastern European showdown when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The Pentagon says military units from Joint Base Lewis-McChord are among those on heightened alert amid tensions between Ukraine and Russia. Today, the chairman of the Joint Chief... On Friday, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin addressed the situation. Ukraine has the right to be independent, and they have been an independent country since 1991. The United States remains committed to helping Ukraine defend itself. Dan Lamont is covering all of this with the Washington Post and spoke with Como's Taylor Van Sice. As you report, the Pentagon is not being very open about what kind of units are on heightened alert, just their locations. But from your reporting, have you learned if these are the kind of troops that would likely fight within Ukraine or just support NATO allies who might? There is very little expectation that the United States would be fighting in Ukraine President Biden has specifically ruled it out himself. 
there's a probably a small window open where if there was a major evacuation of the embassy or something like that, perhaps you would see U.S. troops involved in that. But the reality is the majority of these troops we're hearing about, including the ones from Lewis McCord, uh, would likely end up in places like Poland or Estonia, kind of that Eastern European flank that is not currently within uh, Russia's eyesight. But, uh, you know, the concern would be that Russia just keeps going and having additional American forces there is, is meant to reassure. And the footprint of the U.S. Navy and by extension, the Marines is, is massive. Ukraine, though, with very limited naval capabilities. How long would it take to squeeze ships through Turkish waters to the Black Sea if some kind of uh, Russian incursion happens? The Black Sea is, is bottled up with a number of uh, diplomatic agreements that the United States is a party to. Right now, we have zero uh, U.S. war vessels in the Black Sea. As of yesterday was my last check. Any kind of effort to put warships in the Black Sea, the United States is supposed to notify the international com- community uh, 15 days in advance. Uh, and then there, there's a bottleneck uh, along the Turkish coast, and then you find your way into Black Sea waters. So at this point, it would just kind of be holding back in the Mediterranean, likely. That's right. And there actually is a great deal of United States war vessels in the Mediter- Mediterranean right now, uh, including a aircraft carrier strike group. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Russia doesn't want that to change, which is kind of at the heart of this standoff. But if Russia invades Ukraine, what would it take for us to see an actual, you know, full-out NATO deployment? I think what it's really going to come down to is whether all members of NATO are looking to put additional military units on the Eastern Eastern Europe side of uh, the continent. Uh, the way the NATO um, rules and work, it requires all 30 members to sign off on a NATO deployment. With that said, if they do not have all 30 members that sign up for this, the United States could still send forces uh, with the consent of a specific country like Poland or Romania, as long as they have the permission and probably invitation and request, they could put additional forces in some of those places anyway. Finally, is diplomacy still an option? Is that on the table? The United States over and over and over again continues to say that diplomacy is still an option, that uh, Vladimir Putin has other choices. He doesn't have to go through with this. As we continue to move through with this, I think that is beginning to look more and more slim uh, the expectation is that a Russian invasion could incur within days. Uh, they're really looking for a specific kind of weather. Uh, and what, once a lot of the open farm field in Ukraine is frozen, it makes it easier to invade with heavy armor. And that's Dan Lamoth with us on our newsline from the Washington Post. You can find Dan's coverage online at WashingtonPost.com. And that's Como's Taylor Van Sice. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, our legislative roundup and remembering one of Washington's most outspoken state senators when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back. I'm Jeff Podolim. Finally on the Como Politicast this week, our legislative roundup. State lawmakers this week debating a compromise bill that would allow cities and counties to impose an income tax. Now, we first talked about this last week, but legislators are finally weighing in on the topic. The measure is sponsored by Senator Bob Hasegawa, the Seattle Democrat. It would allow a local income income tax only if an equal amount of taxes were cut elsewhere. But Republicans argue such a proposal is still unconstitutional. Senate Majority Leader John Braun. There's an almost 100-year-old precedent that says that, you know, in in fact, the plain language of the Constitution says income is property, and the plain language says you can't have a, you have to have a uniform rate, and you can't exceed 1%. And when asked about it at their weekly media availability, Democrats didn't specifically address the merits of the bill. Senator Monka Dingra. I think it is imperative that we continue to have these conversations on 
who is paying, how much are they paying, and is that really fair? At the moment, it's unclear on how much Democratic support there is for Hasegawa's proposal. On the issue of vaccines, passing fake COVID vaccine cards would land you behind bars under a bill making its way through the state capitol. Camus Ryan Harris has that. The bill from Shoreline Democrats, State Senator Jesse Solomon, calls for fines and up to 90 days in jail if you use a bogus vax card, five years in prison if you give or sell the cards to people. Solomon tells the Law and Justice Committee he hopes the bill would be more of a deterrent, but he says it's about truth. People who are medically vulnerable who want to go to a place that has vaccine requirements should be able to go there without wondering or experiencing somebody using false vaccines and possibly infecting them. Yakima County Commissioner Amanda McKinney argues Omicron has shown the vaccines don't prevent virus transmission. Providing proof of vaccination does not make the presenter any less of a public threat than a person who patrons that establishment and does not have a vaccination card. Ryan Harris, Como News. Meanwhile, lawmakers are considering restrictions on the teaching of critical race theory. This bill comes from conservative Republican State Representative Jim Walsh. If passed, it would ban districts from requiring critical race theory as mandatory coursework. Also banned as a requirement would be the New York Times 1619 Project and the book How to Be an Anti-Racist. Critics have argued such teachings are anti-white and amount to indoctrination. Instead, Walsh offered his own list of mandatory coursework, the selection of which, he admits, did not involve historians or experts in public education. I consulted with my constituents to put the list together. Um, I think the people of Washington are the voices we should listen to. Uh, not self-appointed experts. But his bill has drawn stiff opposition with many students like Molly Reagan speaking out against it. Being educated on history does not make me as a white student feel guilty. It makes me feel connected to a real and genuine community built upon strong bonds of truth. Walsh's bill does not appear to have nearly enough support for passage. There was also a lively debate this week between lawmakers and the public over the privacy of personal information on ballot envelopes. Camus John Lobertini reports. Not that long ago, Washington was the poster child for how to do elections right. Their signature, personal phone numbers, their personal email addresses. But in 2022, lawmakers are taking a different look, like the information on the back of ballot envelopes. Secretary of State Steve Hobbs is co-sponsoring House Bill 1953. As you know, the focus of the Secretary of State is on security and election systems, both the physical realm and cyberspace. This is a grassroots concern, but no less troubling. Paula Sardinas is with the Build Back Black Alliance. We are deeply concerned that some of the information provided in Washington's ballot can be requested by any member of the public and could be used for nefarious purposes. House Bill 1953 is quickly gaining wide support. John Lobertini, Como News. Meanwhile, Governor Inslee testified for a bill that would make it a crime for politicians to intentionally lie about elections. They would be guilty of a gross misdemeanor under Senate Bill 5843 if they intend to cause or actually cause violence with said lie, if it undermines the election process, or if they make a false claim to an elected office. Inslee told the Senate Government and Elections Committee that there are many times that it is in fact illegal to lie. Perjury, lying on your tax returns. And I believe we need a standard to prevent this type of lie with all its incredible destructive effects on the very foundations of democracy and our own personal security. But there was quite a bit of pushback. Citizen Eric Pratt testified 
mind that this would harm free speech rights and create further division as the governor uses the January 6th U.S. Capitol riot as an example. Blatant usage of this as a backdrop for, for a reckless bill like this is extremely concerning. Critics also say this would frighten politicians away from open debate over election results when they do actually need to be questioned. And finally, the legislature honored the late Senator Doug Erickson this week. Erickson died last month after contracting COVID. He was one of the most outspoken members of the Republican caucus and left behind a legacy of fierce conservatism. Senate Minority Leader John Braun. And he had this truly remarkable gift, Mr. President, to refocus the debate on the people who would be affected by the legislation in his district and around the state. Democrats gave their praise as well with one of the most moving speeches coming from longtime friend, Reuven Carlisle. When we served together in the House, we both played a sort of role on the Senate, on the House floor, where for our respective parties, we were sort of the closers on the floor. We would bring the narrative of a bill uh, to conclusion in debate. And we did everything we could to outdo each other with rhetorical flourish. And it was a friendly competition to articulate the, articulate the narrative. Afterwards, we would always acknowledge who had uh, done the better job, regardless of the vote count. It was poetic, and I enjoyed that engagement with him very much. Erickson's family was presented with the flag that flew over the Capitol on the day of his funeral. He was 52 years old. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and many more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.